Chapter 7 of The Gladstone Colony, an unwritten chapter of Australian history by James Francis Hogan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. The Growth and Development of Gladstone. The official career of the new colony, and the philanthropic experiment on which Mr. Gladstone had bestowed so much time, thought, and labour, was now at an end. North Australia was a thing of the past wiped out of existence by the unceremonious edict of Earl Grey. But the little town of Gladstone, the intended metropolis of the new colony, remained as an established entity on the shores of Port Curtis. And although Earl Grey could abolish North Australia with a stroke of his pen, it was beyond his power to prevent, or to check, in any way, the growth and development of the town of Gladstone. That town was destined to be the one direct and permanent outcome of the colonising project of the great statesman whose name it bears and perpetuates. An indirect but not unimportant result of Mr Gladstone's experiment was to expedite, and to bring within the range of practical politics the creation of the present colony of Queensland, which covers all the territory that Mr Gladstone had assigned and set apart for North Australia. For, brief as was the official existence of the colony of North Australia, it lasted long enough to draw the attention of adventurous and ambitious young men in the southern districts, to the fact that splendid areas of unoccupied pastoral country were to be found in the vicinity of Port Curtis. The result was that while Colonel Barney and his pioneers were retreating to the south under orders from Earl Grey, other bands of pioneers were travelling up from the south, overland, driving their flocks and herds before them. These newcomers spread themselves over the Port Curtis district, squatted on the rich grassy flats, grew by degrees into an important and influential community, and thus paved the way for advent of the great colony of Queensland, which may be metaphorically described as the imposing superstructure erected on the temporarily abandoned foundations of Mr Gladstone's North Australia. Some time before Colonel Barney received his marching orders to return to Sydney, the course of events was clearly foreseen by at least one Sydney journalist who wrote, quote, what is there to restrain our squatters and our settlers, who, like Lot in ancient times, will naturally have an eye to the best-watered runs, from advancing into the region so highly praised by the explorers, and, forsaking the barren realms of New South Wales, adding to the population and pastoral wealth of North Australia? There they will find fresh grass, abundance of water, a free country, and there, unterrified by the one-pound-per-acre clause, and not having the fear of the commissioner before their eyes, they may make hay while the sun shines, that is, until Colonel Barney can summon up courage enough to start a few commissioners of his own, which, by the way, would be one of the wisest things he could do. It will be but a short time before cattle and drays will be finding their way to the, at present, unknown embouchures or heads of navigation, of the great rivers that must enter the ocean somewhere in the neighbourhood of the new settlement. End quote. Gladstone thus grew apace and developed into the nearest and most accessible port, of a considerable area of pastoral country dotted with sheep and cattle stations. The port to which the squatters sent their wool, tallow, hides, etc., for exportation, and from which their drivers brought back dray loads of all the requisite supplies for their stations, by one of those right-about-face evolutions, which are by no means rare, either in British or colonial politics, Gladstone, from being originally the bete noire of the Sydney government, became, in a few years, its particular protégé, its pet township, as Mr. Pugh says in his historical sketch of Queensland, the favoured spot for the expenditure of Treasury subsidies. Mr. and afterwards Sir Henry, 
Parks, the Prime Minister of the future, then a young member for the City of Sydney and a zealous economist of the public funds, was repeatedly indignant at what he considered this wasteful expenditure upon Gladstone, and made many vehement speeches on the subject. No doubt the animating motive of this complete change of policy on the part of the Sydney authorities was their conviction that separation was imminent and inevitable, and they naturally preferred that the capital of the new colony, which would soon be created in the north, should be a town at considerable distance, such as Gladstone was, rather than the only other possible capital, Brisbane, which was close enough to their own doors to be regarded as an unpleasant and undesirable rival metropolis. Hence all the efforts of the Sydney government during the years preceding separation were directed towards thrusting Gladstone into the forefront and pushing Brisbane into the background. These efforts, as we know, were not ultimately crowned with success. When separation did come and the colony of Queensland was constituted by the Imperial Parliament, Brisbane, as the site of the first settlement and the possessor of the larger population, was deemed to have superior claims to Gladstone in the choice of the capital. In other respects, Gladstone unquestionably would have been the better choice. It had what Brisbane could make no possible pretense to, a magnificent harbour, and it possessed the great merit of a central and commanding position on the coast. Indeed, one glance at a map is sufficient to show that the situation of Brisbane is positively ludicrous and entirely indefensible as a metropolis, being at the remote southeast corner of a territory stretching away for some 1,300 miles to the north and 1,000 miles to the west. One of the most important steps taken by the Sydney authorities with a view to pushing Gladstone into all possible prominence and qualifying the place for metropolitan honours was to constitute at the seat of a government resident. Having regard to the remoteness of the town at that early stage of its existence, the absence of regular communication with Sydney, and the consequent necessity of acting largely on his own responsibility and depending on his own resources, the position of a government resident under such circumstances approximated closely to that of a governor of an isolated crown colony. The Sydney authorities made an admirable selection when they nominated Sir Maurice Charles O'Connell as the first government resident at Gladstone in the beginning of 1854. A few days afterwards, he was also gazetted as police magistrate and commissioner of crown lands at Gladstone. This gentleman, who was a kinsman of Daniel O'Connell, the emancipator of Catholic Ireland, had entered the army as an ensign in 1828, when he was in his 17th year. He accompanied his regiment, the 73rd Foot, to Gibraltar and Malta, and in 1835 he obtained special permission to raise an Irish regiment for service in Spain to uphold the cause of Queen Isabella against the Carlists. Of this regiment, the 10th Munster Light Infantry, he was gazetted Lieutenant Colonel. He was in command of this regiment for nearly two years, during which he took part in a number of engagements and achieved considerable distinction. At the close of the campaign, he was a general of brigade and a knight of three Spanish orders. In 1838, he accompanied the 28th Regiment to Sydney, and on its recall, he sold out and settled in the colony, devoting himself with considerable success to pastoral pursuits. After serving for three years in the New South Wales Legislative Council as member for Port Phillip, he was appointed as Commissioner of Crown Lands in the Burnett District, an office from which he retired at the end of 1853, in compliance with a request from the government to superintend and establish the permanent settlement on the shores of Port Curtis. It is the career of Sir Maurice O'Connell as government resident at Gladstone, which specially comes within the scope and purpose of the present work, but it will be convenient at this stage, briefly, to summarise his subsequent history. He remained the official in charge of the Gladstone district until 1859, 
when the colony that mr gladstone had projected and partially established under the style and title of north australia became an actual and permanent political entity under the name of queensland sir maurice o'connell was nominated a member of the first queensland legislative council and rendered valuable assistance to the ministry of sir robert herbert to which he was unofficially attached in eighteen sixty one he was elected to the presidency of the legislative council and he continued to hold that high office up to the day of his death discharging its important duties with a dignity impartiality and courtesy that commanded general respect and esteem on four occasions he was called upon to officiate as acting governor of the colony his death on march the twenty third eighteen seventy nine was deeply and sincerely deplored throughout the length and breadth of the colony his remains were honoured with a public funeral and a life pension was conferred upon his widow by the parliament of queensland on the same day that it announced the appointment of sir maurice o'connell as government resident at gladstone the herald published a lengthy article of three columns discussing in detail the agitation that had arisen for the erection of a new colony in the northern district of new south wales the establishment of such a colony was deprecated as premature and unnecessary but in the event of imperial government deciding otherwise it was strongly urged that gladstone and not brisbane should be the northern capital Quote, in appointing the centre of a colony a secure and easily accessible harbour is a desideratum that first presents itself and by all accounts few on the coast can compete with port curtis in either respect this place is admirably fitted to become the site of a capital its situation close to the commencement of that great barrier reef which forms so singular and formidable a feature of the northeastern coast is calculated to confer upon it additional importance and when combined with its easy access and secure anchorage will always ensure its being frequented by steamers and other vessels navigating along the coast if therefore a northern colony must be formed it would appear that its limits can only be properly defined and its capital fixed upon after the settlement of port curtis has been thoroughly explored as a result of the appointment of sir maurice o'connell to the government residency at gladstone and the pervading belief that gladstone would be the chosen capital of the new colony that must sooner or later be proclaimed in the north a considerable amount of public interest was concentrated on the first sale of government land around the shores of port curtis it was held at the colonial treasury sydney on february the eighth and ninth eighteen fifty four there was keen competition for gladstone town and suburban lots and the aggregate sales realized nearly fourteen thousand pounds archbishop paulding then catholic primate of australia sir james martin afterwards chief justice of new south wales and the honourable william forster afterwards prime minister and agent general for new south wales in london figure prominently in the list of purchasers but from the frequency with which such names as moses mendelssohn and cohen occur it is evident that jewish speculators were chiefly responsible for the pactolian stream which flowed into the colonial treasury as a result of the first sale of gladstone lands a newspaper correspondent writing shortly afterwards from brisbane the rival candidate for the northern metropolitan honours remarked quote, we were rather surprised on learning the high prices paid for ground at port curtis the result of the first sale of allotments at gladstone proves that i was correct in all along maintaining that the public would attach a high degree of importance to that place the same correspondent writing on march the ninth and discussing the petitions to the queen for the separation of the northern district from new south wales observed quote, the approach to unanimity is not so close as was supposed in the north they are inveterately opposed to the measure 
if brisbane is to be the capital of the new colony under the circumstances it seems impolitic in the brisbane people to press their petition its consideration is likely to bring forward what many consider to be the superior claims of port curtis to form the capital and it is worth their while to reflect whether it would not on the whole be better for them to maintain the present connection with sydney than to see their respectable borough eclipsed by a metropolis so close to them as gladstone End quote. a letter from sydney to england dated march the twentieth eighteen fifty four refers to the opening up of the port curtis district under the administration of sir maurice o'connell as quote, the most important feature in our recent affairs End quote. the departure of sir maurice from sydney quote, with a well-appointed staff of working pioneers End quote, is recorded and it is added that the first operation to which sir maurice would direct his efforts would be the development of every available means of internal communication he would commence by constructing a road from gladstone to gainder the then most northerly post town in australia a distance of a hundred miles Quote, whether as regards the pastoral mercantile or maritime interests of the colony the opening of this new settlement offers a most promising subject of consideration the results of the first sales of lands already surveyed in the town of gladstone give evidences to the great interest with which the new settlement is viewed for twenty-one town allotments the upset price of which was twenty pounds per acre three hundred and eighteen pounds per acre was given for two hundred and fifteen acres of suburban lots whose upset price was from two pounds to two pounds ten shillings per acre nine pounds per acre was obtained End quote. In the speech from the throne at the opening of Parliament in Sydney on May the 10th, 1853, Sir Charles Fitzroy referred to the great increase of pastoral settlers in the Port Curtis district, the growing importance of Gladstone, and the necessity of making that town the headquarters of an adequate force of police. Provision, he added, would be made upon the estimates to meet this essential expenditure. Simultaneously with this vice-regal statement was published a report of a very interesting character on the progress of settlement in the districts around Port Curtis. It gives some graphic particulars of the perils to which the pioneer squatters and settlers were subjected. We are told that before the organisation of a force of mounted native police under Commandant Walker, murders by the wild blacks were of almost daily occurrence. White men could not travel at all unless well mounted and well armed. Hut keepers would not venture down to the creek to get a bucket of water without a double-barrelled gun. Workers would not journey along the road by foot unless in bands for mutual protection, and tree-fellers at each blow looked behind them, expecting to see a spear levelled at them by some lurking savage. Chinamen, who had been imported by the squatters to act as shepherds, were so scared by the ferocity and hostility of the blacks that they deserted en masse, or bolted, to use the more expressive phrase of the report. But when a certain number of the blacks were civilised, organised into companies of mounted native police, officered by white men of military experience and trained to run down shoot or capture their wild marauding brethren of the bush the condition of the country around port curtis rapidly improved the marvellous qualities of these native troopers are thus depicted Quote, in a country intersected with thick scrubs and well supplied with fruits game of all kinds and water hordes of savage blacks swarm issuing forth in bands attacking the shepherds and driving away the stock to slaughter at their leisure in almost all the attacks made upon them by the whites, the latter were worsted, being unable to penetrate the scrubs. But the native policeman, when once he has passed the sagacious searching examination of the commandant, and is reported fit for duty, can go anywhere and do anything. He is an expert swordsman, a perfect light dragoon, 
and one of the best skirmishers of any troops in the world. When dismounted and fighting on his own hook, nothing stops him, nothing daunts him. He scales the highest mountains like a goat, traverses the plains in pursuit with the swiftness of a deer, rushes through the scrub like a wallaby, and loads and fires with the precision of an old soldier. End quote. At the time this report was prepared, all the best lands for hundreds of miles in the vicinity of Port Curtis had been marked out by adventurous pioneer squatters for occupation as sheep and cattle stations, as soon as government sanction could be secured. Some appear to have anticipated the formal official permission, for it is recorded that James and Norman Leith Hay, with 40,000 sheep, have crossed the dividing range and occupied a splendid country close upon the borders of Port Curtis. Other gentlemen are about to follow with more sheep, some appear to have anticipated the formal official permission, for it is recorded that, quote, James and Norman Leith Hay, with 40,000 sheep, have crossed the dividing range and occupied a splendid country, close upon the borders of Port Curtis. Other gentlemen are about to follow with more sheep, and before 12 months have passed, the whole country up to the peak range will be clothed with cattle and sheep upon a thousand hills. Nothing can stop the onward march of the Australian squatter, protected as he now is, by Commandant Walker's native police. All this is due to their civilising influence. Quote ends. The Brisbane Courier, on the 1st of April, 1854, wrote, quote, Within the last few months, since northern separation has appeared inevitable in Sydney, there has been a great outcry about Port Curtis, which has been played against Moreton Bay, and the land at which place has realised large sums owing to the flourish of trumpets so interestingly sounded in its behalf, if a colony is to be established with a centre at Port Curtis, we may reasonably expect the limits of such colony to extend some three or four degrees further to the northward. And in such a temperature, the sheep farmer, who alone could be a profitable colonist in a new country like that, might soon bid adieu to his calling, for the wool of his sheep would soon become too coarse to pay. If sheep farming can be profitably carried on as far north as the Tropic of Capricorn, it is as much as can be expected. What other branch of industry, then, would be the means of introducing and supporting a population there? Certainly, agriculture without a market will never do, and all that remains is the mere chance of a goldfield being discovered. Any attempt, then, to fix the centre of a colony at Port Curtis, deprived of the succour and support of the wealth and population of the Moreton Bay district, must end in disappointment and disaster. End quote. The Brisbane organ was willing to recognise Port Curtis as an important outpost of the new colony, which might in process of time, develop into a large and populous centre. In that case, and if in the future Gladstone should become the most eligible site for the seat of government, the courier acknowledged that the future Governor of North Australia would have a right to remove thither. Commenting on this Brisbane view of the rival northern centre Gladstone, the Sydney Morning Herald pointed out that the statement that sheep farming could not be successfully carried on beyond the Tropic of Capricorn owing to the alleged deterioration of the wool in low latitudes, was a mere surmise. Quote, there are sheep now running and producing wool of first-rate quality in situations which have been pronounced a few years ago, simply on account of the lowness of their latitude, altogether unsuitable for the growth of the great colonial staple. In fact, every movement of sheep northwards towards the tropic during the last four or five years has been undertaken more or less in the way of experiment. And as these movements have always succeeded, it is difficult to say where the true northern limit to the successful growth of wool is to be drawn in Australia. End quote. 
the herald proceeded to soundly rate the brisbane folks for fancying that their interests required them to deprecate gladstone as the future centre of a large exporting district and lightly estimate its probable pastoral resources the folly of disparaging what was evidently designed as the natural outlet of a vast extent of valuable territory the lapse of a very short time would clearly establish cotton sugar coffee rice and maize could in all probability be most successfully cultivated in the port curtis district while the auriferous prospects of that extensive region were of the most inviting character as for the objection that gladstone was unsuitable as the capital or centre of a new northern colony because it was too near the existing northern limits of white settlement the herald contended it was an objection that could at any time be removed by the simple process of extending those limits Quote, to what extent this ought to be done in the supposition that it is intended to make gladstone the capital of a new colony will depend partly on the line that may be adopted as to the southern boundary of that colony and partly on the extent of inhabited country to the north eastward of which port curtis shall be found to form the natural harbour sir charles fitzroy commenced his career as governor of new south wales by faithfully carrying out the instructions he had received from mr gladstone both in conversation and correspondence in regard to establishment of the colony of north australia and there was a certain appropriateness in the fact that one of his last viceregal acts prior to surrendering the reins after an exceptionally long tenure of office was to voyage to the town of gladstone the sturdy and prosperous child of vanished north australia and formally install sir maurice o'connell as government resident sir maurice sailed out of sydney harbour on board the tom tuff on march the first eighteen fifty four accompanied by lady o'connell captain prout mr riddle mr moore mr shepherd and fifty-two in the steerage three days later sir charles fitzroy embarked at sydney on board her majesty's ship calliope for the purpose of making a tour through the northern district of the colony and officially establishing a government settlement on the shores of port curtis all the leading officials of the colony assembled at government house and accompanied his excellency to fort macquarie stairs where he was received by a guard of honour from the eleventh regiment with the band and the queen's colours on his excellency's leaving the shore a salute was fired from fort philip and on his reaching the ship his flag as vice-admiral of australasia was hoisted and saluted with seventeen guns quote, the main and chief object of the trip end quote, wrote the sydney morning herald quote, is to establish a settlement at port curtis to form in fact what may hereafter be considered by geographers under whatever name it may be designated the northern province of the australian continent such an object is of the greatest importance to the whole community a government resident for the district has been appointed and competent people have been sent down to report on the natural capabilities of the country to predict anything of good to augur anything of evil would be most improper but we shall look most anxiously for the results of this expedition after a brief stay at brisbane sir charles proceeded to port curtis and arrived off the infant town of gladstone on the afternoon of april the sixteenth sir maurice and lady o'connell went out to meet him and remained on board the calliope until nightfall on the following morning sir charles fitzroy and sweet officially landed amidst the cheers of assembled gladstonians white constables and black being drawn up in military array the latter called the native mounted police were under the command of lieutenant murray repairing to the extemporised government house of the settlement sir charles received an address of welcome and formally installed sir maurice o'connell in the office of government resident at gladstone 
expressing his hope and belief that the settlement at whose inauguration they were assisting now today would grow and prosper and play an important part in the future development of northern australia his excellency after visiting the principal ones of interest was entertained at a banquet and in responding to the toast of his health spoke in eulogistic terms of the delightful scenery by which gladstone was surrounded and of the many advantages offered by port curtis as a harbour and distributing centre for the northern districts when they had become thoroughly opened up as they assuredly would be in the early future during his stay at gladstone sir charles fitzroy called upon the oldest inhabitant of that place mr wilmont and took lunch with him after the abortive colonising experiment of colonel barney mr wilmont with a firm faith in the future of the place established himself on the shores of port curtis and his courage enterprise and foresight did not go without their reward his excellency also made several excursions into the country round port curtis he was much interested in the discovery of specks of gold on the banks of a certain river and strongly urged sir maurice o'connell carefully to prospect the locality with an eye to the discovery of a permanent and payable gold field he christened the river the calliope and in a few years the calliope goldfield became an established and recognised fact the voyage back to sydney was exceedingly tempestuous and the calliope was forced to run for shelter under the lee of lord howe's island a small party braved the elements and ventured ashore they found four families numbering twenty souls living on this lonely spot in the pacific five children were baptised by the chaplain of the calliope the reverend mr carwithen who was the first clergyman seen on the island being struck by a squall of exceptional violence the cable of the calliope snapped and she was compelled to put to sea in very rough weather which did not moderate for several days sydney was reached on the morning of the tenth of may in opening a new session of parliament on june the sixth sir charles fitzroy thus referred to his visit to gladstone in the speech from the throne Quote, my recent visit to the northern districts of the colony has been of material assistance to me in forming an opinion of their value and importance and i shall be prepared to submit for your consideration in the course of the session certain measures calculated to increase their trade and develop their resources the new settlement at port curtis promises to be at no distant day of great value to this colony on account of the excellence of its harbour its genial climate and the fertility of its soil End quote. the official recognition of gladstone by the visit of the governor and his confident predictions of its coming prosperity and importance appear to have had an immediate effect in attracting people to the place for in a letter from gladstone dated may the twentieth eighteen fifty four the constant arrival of new settlers and citizens is recorded most of them came overland from the south quote, cutting and marking as they came what will probably ere long be a fine road into the interior quote, to quote the words of the letter quote, we constantly hear the letter proceeds of new water holes and excellent water being found by ramblers and bushmen and gladstone is now no worse off than sydney in this respect plenty of cattle too are daily expected with overland parties everything in its way is assisting to make gladstone greater than many towns that are twenty times its age and its harbour above everything must make it the envy of every seaport on this coast scarcely excepting port jackson itself in the legislative council at sydney on the twenty ninth of august sir henry parks inquired whether in founding the new settlement at gladstone any reserves of land had been set apart for the use of the blacks the colonial secretary replied that reserves for the use of the aboriginal population were always set apart 
when new districts were colonised. In the case of Port Curtis, no reserve had yet been proclaimed, but it was intended by the government to provide one, if not two, as soon as it was known what the habits and requirements of the natives were. A letter dated the 8th of September, 1854, says, quote, There seems to be no doubt that the country in the immediate neighbourhood of Gladstone is possessed of considerable agricultural capabilities, and this of itself will, in time, when labour is more abundant, confer upon the place a considerable degree of importance. As yet, there does not seem to be much investment of capital going on, either in buildings or territorial improvement. By selling the Gladstone allotments in Sydney, a higher price was unquestionably obtained, but in taking this course, the government have unquestionably retarded the progress of their infant settlement. Purchasers closer to Gladstone would have improved their properties by buildings or cultivation forthwith, whereas the allotments, having been acquired by Sydney speculators, will in all probability be left untouched for years, in the hope of an augmentation taking place in their value. End quote. On the 25th of July, 1855, Sir Henry Parkes attacked the government for what he conceived to be the extravagant amount of money they had expended on the establishment of the new settlement at Gladstone. He objected to voting £3,300 as salaries for the officials engaged in creating what he characterised as a new utopia, and a further sum of £7,000 for the starting of public works at Gladstone. He also attacked the appointment of Sir Maurice O'Connell to the government residency. The colonial secretary, in reply, said he regarded the new settlement at Gladstone in the light of an important dependency, and as a most advantageous expansion of the colony in a northerly direction. The honourable member for Sydney had charged the government with going to great expense for a private purpose, and in order to bestow an appointment on a certain gentleman. He could assure the House that the gentleman appointed as government resident at Gladstone had been selected on account of his special knowledge of the country and its capabilities, as well as for his conspicuous intelligence and ability. When it was determined to establish a settlement at Gladstone, it was obviously necessary to dispatch a vessel with a surveying party in the first instance, and when the district came to be partially settled, it was no less necessary to send a native police force to remove from the minds of the settlers all apprehension of attacks from the Aborigines. The Governor-General had from the first taken the proper and statesmanlike view of the circumstances and necessities of this new dependency, and had acted most judiciously throughout. End of chapter 7 Recording by Timothy Ferguson Gold Coast, Australia